Oh, you want to, hey, what's going on? I guess that was a really awesome, dramatic introduction for you to come on stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll explain what I want to accomplish today because I'd love to get some audience questions. I know you'd love to do that. Um, I want to have about a half hour conversation on the deep state and what we can do about it. And we have a uh, deep state survivor with us, Kyle Serafin. And uh, I'm going to ask some uh, questions from libertarians that, that want to push you on some things. And then hopefully at least 15 minutes of questions from the audience. And this show is being recorded for my program, Kibbe on Liberty, and it'll show up on Blaze TV. And I've already asked people not to, not to do weird things because we will capture them on film doing it. So um, I learned about you two years ago here at Porkfest um, when I was doing a podcast with another gentleman. And he's like, you got to check out this guy, Vivek. And I was mispronouncing your name at the time. I, right. I learned more recently how to say your name properly. Um, I'm sure I'm not the first person to mispronounce it. Yeah, you're just the first, actually. Yeah, the very first. Pull, pull your mic a little bit closer so they can hear. Oh, they're not on. That's a good point. That would help. Can you guys hear me now? Good. Thank you. Give us a test, too. Test. The dog liked it. <laughs> okay, let's start everything over. Um, and I want to start, like, talking about the deep state. You yep. have laid out a very ambitious agenda of eliminating a lot of alphabet agencies that we don't even know what they do. Um, we know that they're, they're unfireable and that they have their own agendas. And, and I, would, I would say, as a, as a libertarian who has studied public choice theory, it is inevitable if you uh, grow the government and you create these constituencies that want to feather their own nests at the expense mm -hmm. of the public, um, it becomes an intractable problem. Like, yep. so, so what do we do about that? So, I mean, the first thing I want to say is, uh, just by way of introduction to how you got to know me as well, I used to call myself a libertarian, actually, as recently as maybe 10, 15 years ago, certainly when I was in college. And... You all will agree with probably 80 to 90% of what I have to say. It will not be 100%. But I think the Republican Party is a vehicle for advancing many of those ideas. And the top of those ideas that I think we're going to share in common is that we have three branches of government in the Constitution, not four, that the people we elect to run the government should be the ones who actually run the government. That's a simple principle. We start from there. We fought an American revolution over that one idea that the people we elect to run the government run the government. So how do we actually get to that state of affairs? Because that's not where we are today. I think it requires a deep understanding of the law as it already exists. The first thing I'll leave with you is we do not need new laws to get this done. We need a new president with the actual will to get it done. One of the reasons I'm in this race is I think I have a better statutory and constitutional understanding of how to legally do this without asking Congress for permission or forgiveness because Congress has already, over the years, given us the legal toolkit to do it. Yeah, I'll bore you guys to sleep if I name all the laws, but 5 U.S.C. 3302, it's a law that says the U.S. president gets to set the HR policies of the federal government. 
Right now, there's this guy in the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, they call it. Three-letter alphabet soup permeates the federal government that people bow down to like it's an authority in the HR department of the federal, depart federal government. What we actually need is a president with a spine to say that, you know what, if I'm the CEO of a company and somebody works for me and I can't fire them, that means they don't work for me. It means I work for them because I'm responsible for what they do without having any authority to actually change it. Turns out our law works the same way. The US president has sole authority to set the HR policies of the federal government. When an agency should not exist, we go down the list, the US Department of Education, the FBI, the IRS, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the ATF, we'll go straight down the list. When those agencies should not exist, I will not make you a false promise. I don't, I don't think you should believe any politician who does to say that we'll reform that agency. Once it's come into existence, it's a creature of its own. It's its own Leviathan. You cannot tame that beast, but you can kill it. You can shut it down. And I think that is, again, something that the U.S. president is constitutionally empowered to do. You just need the will and the fortitude to actually do it. It's not going to happen with an outside, with a, thank you, with an insider. I'm 37. I'm the first millennial ever to run for U.S. president as a Republican. I've never run for office before. I'm an outsider. I think it will take an outsider to get that job and see it through. But it has to be an outsider that has an understanding of the law and the Constitution. And that's probably if there's one thing I do when I leave office in January 2033. There's a lot else we can talk about. We will again have three branches of government in this country, not four. That's why I'm in this. All right. Well. That's definitely music to my ears, and I have a follow-up question before I pull Kyle into this conversation. Um, one of the things that, that you, if you're objectively looking at what Trump did right and wrong, one of the things that they did was put um, better people in agencies and do a lot of dismantling of regulation and other onerous programs, but they did it administratively yep. as opposed to getting authorizing legislation that made it permanent. And I bet to a single line item, the Biden administration came in and just undid everything that, that Trump did that was correct and things that he did that weren't correct. Um, my question is, um, as president, you come in and, and you take this aggressive stance, but, but ultimately you're gonna need Congress to uh, unauthorize all of these civil service rules that create this permanent unfireable bureaucracy. So, so my view on this is a little different, and this is why I think we're going to be successful. My answer is no, I don't. And the reason why is, take the pres there's existing laws on the books that have been underutilized by U.S. presidents who lacked a spine and hid behind their cowardice claiming that these civil service protections stopped them. So let me give you some facts you probably haven't heard before, but I've spent the last three years of my life living, eating, breathing this, so allow me to share a little bit of the learnings. The civil service protections are only protections against political firings of somebody who sits in an agency at the individual level. On their own terms, they do not apply to mass firings. Mass firings only require 60-day notice. So shutting down the U.S. Department of Education or the FBI, the civil service protections do not get in the way of that. The 1977 Presidential Reorganization Act gives the president the ability to reorganize redundant agencies or to shut down agencies if it promotes the economy. We're growing at less than 1% GDP growth this year. 
when we've grown at over 4% for most of our national history, especially in the period before we left the gold standard. So a big part of what stands in the way is the administrative state. Absolutely, it would promote the economy to save, I just learned from you, the $11 billion a year we spend through the FBI or the $85 billion a year we spend through the U.S. Department of Education. That's something the U.S. president is already empowered to do. One thing that one mistake they make is they send budget requests to Congress that say, hey, we shall spend. Back in the day, it used to say we may spend. The executive used to ask Congress for permission to spend. Now they've gotten lazy. Presidents in the administrative state, they, presidents take the language given to them by the deep state. The deep state changed the may to shall, so it says you shall spend. So then a president comes in, Reagan to Trump, doesn't matter. They'll say, oh, I want to shut this down. The deep state comes back and says, oh, no, you can't do it because Congress required you to spend it. So all budget requests that go in under my watch go back to asking for permission to say that we may spend it, not that we shall spend it. So I actually think that this is a bit of a myth that we have to go through the congressional sausage making process. That isn't gonna work because that process is bought by the very people who benefit from the existence of that administrative state, which makes Congress a dead end. But the good news, it starts with the Constitution that we set into motion 250 years ago that said, we the people elect the representatives who actually make the laws and run the government, not the unelected federal bureaucracy. And so what I'll say is in setting these policies to give you an example of how we're gonna do this, on that statutory authority, we will set a norm. If I can't collect a paycheck from the US taxpayer for more than eight years, which I think is a good thing, then neither will most of those federal bureaucrats either. We have an eight-year norm that for most positions, you're out after eight years just like the U.S. president. An agency in Washington, D.C., anyone that could be moved to a different area outside of Washington, D.C., across the country, will do it and will make the people move, and many of them won't want to, so that's how you automatically thin out through voluntary terminations. Agencies that shouldn't exist will actually shut them down, not the false promise of reforming it. And I will do that without having to go through Congress because I have a deep understanding of the Constitution and the laws as they already exist. And I think that's what's going to take. An outsider, but an outsider who understands the Constitution. This is not as hard as we make it out to be. It's hard for all the reasons you and I were talking about. But it's not hard for legal reasons. That's just an excuse that leaders make to hide behind their own lack of courage to actually see it through. Thank okay, you. so I, I want to pull Kyle into this and... Uh... Learned a lot from him already, yeah. And uh, Kyle, as I understand it, um, you are a recovering FBI operative. Um, have you recovered or are you still in, it's a, it's in therapy? It's a long process, yeah, yeah. You, gotta, you gotta get it out of your system. Um, so I, I was an FBI special agent for a little bit over six years. I was suspended for a year without pay for my very hardline stance that the government has no business telling me whether or not I should or should not take a vaccine shot based on my religious convictions. So that was a simple line for me. Um, and at the same time that that happened, kind of fortuitously I would say, I also had the opportunity to see our attorney general stand up and say that the United States government would not be using what he called Patriot Act tools, but I'll refer to more broadly as counterterrorism resources against Americans that are protesting at school board meetings because they want their kids to be able to be educated the way they want. And five days later, I got an email, which wasn't sent to me, it was sent through a supervisory chain, and I'm the last guy on it. And, uh, and there were two people that brought this to Congress. And what it said was is that the FBI, under the guise of the counterterrorism division, a guy named Carlton Peoples, who was the AD there, 
was going to use a new threat tag, EDU officials, to tag intelligence on investigations into parents at school board meetings, which I believe was perjury. And so I went in good faith to my congresswoman, who actually was elected out, and she's now rerunning in New Mexico, and I said, this is wrong, this is perjury, I'm bringing a credible allegation in good faith that this needs to be investigated, and that is a really good way to end your career as a federal law enforcement officer uh, underneath the current situation. So that's the way that I, I, I became a recovering agent, and uh, I was terminated and or I acknowledged my termination in April of this year. So, But in that process, you learned that, um, you know, for all of our um, fantasies about honest public servants fighting for good, that it's its own beast. It, it, it has its own agenda. And, and they, in a lot of ways, as Vivek has talked about, they drive public policy and nobody voted for them and nobody can fire them. Yes, so there's an ideological capture that, that is existing in pretty much every government agency. People like to use the term deep state. I know we're gonna get into it. I would like to take it to a less emotional term of administrative state because that's really what formed it and we can talk about that as well. The administrative state is essentially a bunch of co-aligned bureaucratic unelected people that have been in an organization and formed through that culture. And that culture is captured in every single one of them because they're basically all vying to get a few thousand dollars more on their pensions. It's the basis of the most simple form of human motivation. Can I make a $35,000 bonus as a senior executive service member? And there are three tiers of that. And when I do so, if I do that three years in a row, I take one third of that back onto my pension when I retire. And then also I'm in a position to go work for GE or for Google or for Facebook or whatever else as a senior executive. You know, we've, we've heard about the military industrial complex. There's an information industrial complex. There's this censorship apparatus. These all sort of exist at the same time. So all these people are sort of independently motivated to move themselves along. And so they all have the same ideas. And all the people that are promoting in those chains, all the way down to the first line supervisors, have the same exact motivation. And that's the real danger. That's why they have to be torn out root and branch. You can't go down and say, well, we're going to reform them because the culture of the first line supervisor, the first person that puts their hand up and says, I'm willing to be an FBI supervisor. That person doesn't want to work cases. That's why they do that, or they want more money, or they want more power, or they want to go to DC, and they want to become the special agent in charge of an office. And that exists across the entire spectrum of federal government. You just put your finger on it. I just think it's important. I mean, we, we get into the technical details. We were backstage, we already started halfway in our conversation. Forget all the laws, forget all the specific statutes. If you guys want to talk about it in the Q&A, we can. I think it, I'm glad to get specific. But the number one point to remember is that the real divide in this country right now is not between Republicans and Democrats, actually. I think that is an optical illusion. It is between this managerial class and the everyday citizen across the country. And the part I'll observe is you've, you've, lived, in, you've lived in government. You've seen the beast. I'm going to share with you my perspective. I actually come from the private sector. I've built companies lived in corporate America for the last you know, decade and a half before I stepped down to write the books I've written and then now I'm running for president. Here's the reality. That managerial class does not just reside in the government. Administrative state, deep state, it has its, corp it has its corporate counterpart, what I'll call deep corporate. You think the administrative class and companies in Silicon Valley, they're staffed by the same people who are the undersecretary of God knows what, who becomes the ambassador of something else, who becomes the associate dean of whatever at some university. It's the same class of individuals who are not creators in their own right, but who view themselves as authorized to exercise authority over everyday citizens. The most problematic form of it isn't the government, 
But they're the same people who staff many of the HR bureaucracies in the private sector that enforce the so-called regulations that have been coming from on high in the federal government. And I think the danger is different today than even it was 30, 40, 50 years ago when they work together. So the real threat to liberty is not just coming from big government anymore. It's half the story. But it's the way in which that managerial class in government is working with the managerial class in the private sector to together do through the back door what government never could have dreamed of getting done through the front door under the Constitution. Be it censorship of speech, be it a vaccine mandate, front door or back door, be it ESG through actually lending to or not lending to certain projects that Congress wanted to outlaw but couldn't. That's the real threat. It's the ESG industrial, woke industrial complex, whatever you want to call it. It is that merger of state power and private power that together can do what neither can on its own because it's the same managerial class that permeates both. That's the real threat. The, uh, the, the, the critique that you're both making about, about the perverse incentives of government and how they serve themselves instead of the rest of us. I mean, it, we started losing this fight with the birth of the progressive movement and, and when Teddy Roosevelt split off and ran as a bull moose, the dream was to have the elites have complete control over the people and part, how they wanted to do that is take over the administrative state and put the really smart people from the right schools in there and start micromanaging how we live our lives. Um, but what I like to tell my conservative friends is we, we can all agree right now that the FBI is out of control. We can all agree that the IRS is out of control, but the agencies and functions that you most cherish suffer from the same dysfunction. And, and I wonder, I know you have a list, a very attractive list of, of agencies that you want to eliminate completely to reform, but this has to be everything. It does. It really does. Because we were talking about the analogy. I appreciated you bringing this one up, Kyle. You reminded me of it. it was, it's like a hydraulic pump system, like a water balloon. You squeeze it in one place, it just pops up in the other place, right? The only answer is you got to drain the water out of the balloon itself and then toss what's left in the trash. That's really the only approach we're going to be able to take. And where I give President Trump some credit here is he didn't roll over the log, right, and saw what crawled out. There wasn't a president in either major political party in 30, 40 years that had been willing to do that. But here's the danger. You strike that swamp just like it happened to you, Kyle. You strike the swamp, the swamp strikes back. And so if you roll over that log, you better be willing to bring the pesticide because otherwise they're really going to eat their own at the end of the day. And it's not a Republican versus Democrat point. I, I'm actually going to make a, I made this prediction a few days ago. I'll share it with you guys. You mark my words on what happens to Joe Biden once. If, if we get to a place where the deep state or the administrative police state's machinations result in Donald Trump dropping out of this election or not being eligible to run or able to run, that's why they're holding their National Archives investigation of his classified documents in reserve. If he doesn't step aside then, the utility of the puppet will have then passed. They need a new puppet and a better, maybe better and more appealing and attractive puppet to put up in front of them, Michelle, Gavin, whoever it is. This has nothing to do with Biden. They will toss him to one side in the same way that they're trying to dispense with Trump right now. 
It is an animal. It is a Leviathan far more dangerous than what Thomas Hobbes envisioned 250, 400, 500 years ago. And yet it has nothing to do with red versus blue. That's part of the deflection, the optical illusion designed to deflect our attention from the real beast that wields the power. Mark my words, that's actually what's going to happen if Trump gets sidelined in this race. Watch Biden be sacrificed as the next sacrificial lamb by that administrative state once its use for that puppet has passed. Let me, uh, let me talk about my obsession and disappointment and heartbreak over the last three years, three and a half years. We've now discovered, as you mentioned, the, the censorous apparatus, um, very radically anti-American, anti-free speech, anti-First Amendment, um, FBI, CIA, some of these agencies that are absolutely amok. But as you start to dig a little bit deeper, you discover that so much of our pandemic response was not health agencies, it was the national security state, mm -hmm. it was the administrative state, and you actually had um, something called CISA in Homeland Security deciding which of us were essential and non-essential. What's your views on, on the pandemic response and, and what would you do differently, hopefully? Yeah, so I know you've lived this, I wanna you know, hear from Kyle from a first personal experience as well. From my vantage point, sometimes you can see your own country with clearer eyes if you step outside of it for a second. Look what happened in China. Xi Jinping's zero COVID policies had absolutely nothing to do with COVID. I think most of us in this country can agree on that. We, we sometimes get lost with the partisan goggles in the present. People get really worked up when you start talking about COVID or the vaccine. They stop thinking straight. That's what I call the real COVID brain. Okay, is, is the discussion about COVID freezes people's ability to think straight. Let's talk about Xi Jinping instead. That had nothing to do with anything other than him holding on to his unprecedented third term of power. They have a two-term plan, two five-year terms. He broke that chain of succession last October. That was a big deal. There was big dissent with his own, within his own party. What did he use? Zero COVID policy to do it. Locked people down across the entire country and administrative police state apparatus to do it. Let's look at other anti-democratic countries, including China. Look at what prompted the white sheet revolution. People tried to speak up about it. They deputized private companies, WeChat, other companies across the board to monitor for dissent, stifle it and crush it. The government wasn't doing it. It's just a private company doing it. That was WeChat's own choice. Well, we can say we stand against that kind of autocracy. That's not us, that's them, and that's why we fight against them. All right, hold that thought. Now let's look in the mirror. Our national security state, albeit only at a slightly smaller scale, was doing the same thing with respect to the biosecurity state that we established here at home. Had nothing to do with COVID, everything to do with laying the fingerprint for power, dominion, control, and punishment that, mark my words, they will use with respect to the climate excuse next. COVID ain't nothing compared to capital C climate that's coming using those same toolkits that they were test driving. Oh, and then by the way, yeah, I know it's, I know it's anti-democratic if you have a party in power that uses the police state to arrest its political opponents in the middle of an election. That would never happen in the United States of America. Or using private companies, pressuring them through the back door at behest of criminal penalties to censor what the government could not censor directly when it comes to targeting specific, like Alex Berenson, a specific critic of the US government for COVID policies. We now know that White House officials were meeting with their managerial counterparts at Twitter the fifth branch of government, to specifically silence not just general speech, 
The question they asked them five times is, why didn't you shut down Alex Berenson's account in particular by name? If the First Amendment was designed to protect against one thing, it was to preserve the freedom of citizens of this country, people like those of us in this room, to criticize our government. Now, if that same government is specifically silencing you, 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 me, from being able to speak, and by the way, LinkedIn, owned by Microsoft, censored my account while I'm a presidential candidate, imagine what that means for the future of the First Amendment. So Xi, Xi Jinping, it's not so different on this side of the Pacific. Well, let's get even deeper into CISA. So you talked about CISA. If, uh, those of you, if you don't know who Tracy Beans is, she's worth following at UncoverDC.com. One of the things that I picked up following her recently is that CISA, in, after it was formed in 2018, by the way, that came in under Trump, new government agency, and they declared that they had jurisdiction over cognitive infrastructure. Take a second and put that word together. First of all, it's government speak, so that's already retarded. But you have government saying that they are going to go into your brain and that your brain is part of the infrastructure, which is their mandate, to police. And the only way that they can police what's in your brain is what you get in. That's how they justified censorship. That is a Chinese totalitarian position. What I would say to you is this, and they did something that is very, it's transparent, we got to see it because of 2020, because of 2021, the way that the goalposts were moved, you all got to see it in real time. You may have already known, but some of the people out there that have not been paying attention got to see that these things move 10 years, 15 years in one single year. And you went like, oh, that's what they're doing. What I'm gonna to suggest to you is this, the language we use has to be very specific. We are having policy debates. We are talking about positions that are political. The other team, and the other team is people that are part of this administrative state. They're people that believe that the government is the one that should be running everything. They are talking about a religious position and they have all of the trappings of religion that are involved in it. And so your wrong think this cognitive infrastructure, that is a heresy. And you know what they did with heretics, right? You can look at European history, they burn them at the stake, and we are doing that digitally to people. That's how they're getting eliminated. They have to excommunicate you from polite society. Alex Jones has to be thrown out. Is he dangerous? No, but he's a heretic. You can't talk to heretics. You can't befriend heretics. You can't spend time with heretics, even if he's very interesting. I'm actually gonna go hang out with Alex Jones next week, so that'll be fun. So, the, like when you were dealing with people, that are on the wrong team, it's a religious movement. They are immoral, that's the, the argument they're making. And we are losing because we are having this reasonable policy discussion. Oh, is this government agency good? What are the technical means for dismantling it? They are telling you that they have faith in something that doesn't make any sense. Climate change is another great one, right? All of these things are religious tenets and the religion is totally illogical. That's why they have to believe it because otherwise they would wake up every day with a splitting head migraine from their cognitive infrastructure not working, right? It would have massive cognitive dissonance and they would basically fall over dead. But instead, they have a religious structure to put it in. It's really dangerous stuff. But the idea that they are going to regulate the way that you think, that's how they got that open door. And it's how all these things got started, by the way. It's, it's censorship at a high, high level. Last word on this. Yeah, I think the religion point is profound, actually. I think that the... the superstructure of you could pick wokeism climatism pick your favoritism there's a religious conviction that has nothing to do with reason but the point i would make is unlike many religions which have been weaponized to great human harm over the course of human history the most dangerous aspects of these religions today are two things one is their religions without god so there's no path to redemption if, if the old ones, if Joan of Arc ended at the stake, oh boy, you wait to see how this one ends. Correct. Because at least Christianity offers a path to redemption in a way that these 
religions do not. Correct. <laughs> and, and the second thing that's even more dangerous is they still had only the scripture or the tenets of the religion to persuade people with. Whereas today, it's a technological toolkit. Yes. You don't have algorithms or brain implants to actually foist that onto a general populace. And brain implants might sound futuristic of the future. It's not that different than addictive algorithms that are actually used to weed out who does and doesn't comply with those religions today instead. So that makes today's version of those religions far more dangerous than I think a profound point you made, even analogizing these to the crusades of the past. You ain't seen nothing yet compared to what we're actually seeing today. That's correct. So th I, I want to move on to uh, a question I'd like to ask, and, and, and I'll try to characterize all the libertarians in the room. We're skeptical of war. We are skeptical that the war on poverty helped poor people, that we actually created more poor people and more dependency and more destruction of families and lives. We're skeptical of never-ending wars on terror. They seem to create more terror and more chaos and all the while draining us of, of uh, precious American lives and treasure. Um, I view the war on drugs the same way, that we have been fighting in Latin America some 40, 50 years now, um, and created complete chaos. If you think there's a crisis at, at the border, you should spend some time in Honduras and Colombia and other places and wonder why families are risking everything to get to a place where it's safe, because we have devastated those communities. We've replaced any semblance of law and order with um, gang violence, drug cartels, and, and, and murderous, murderous outcomes. So this is, this is a, a, a beef I have with the position that you've had because you've wanted to solve the opioid crisis, particularly the fentanyl crisis, by doubling down on a war that I would view as an abject failure. So let me start with where we agree, and then I'll tell you where I see some daylight. So where we agree is I am a deep skeptic of nearly every war we have fought in the last 50 years in our country. At the time, I was one of the weird guys on the left in college who was arguing even against the unconstitutional violations in Guantanamo, against much of our engagement in Iraq, even over-engagement in Afghanistan that went beyond a narrow mission in the wake of 9-11. So I think we share that foundation in common, and, I, and I'm the only candidate, I, at least in my party, that I'm running in that has openly committed to instantly end the Ukraine war with a peace deal and said exactly how I'm gonna do it. Because I think it is likely to become Vietnam or Iraq all over again, and if we don't learn from our mistakes, we're gonna keep repeating them at an even worse scale. So that's where I am on the war as war. I share your skepticism of the war on drugs. You don't hear me talk about the war on drugs. I'm not a war on drugs person. I think that under-discussed in both parties, but I'll speak for the party that I'm running in, is the demand side of this problem. It is easy to point your finger at somebody else. It is a lot harder, just like the Xi Jinping example I gave earlier, it's a lot harder to take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what is the mental health epidemic, the loss of purpose, the void of meaning? in this country that results people to the results in people turning to fill in the blank. It was, it was opioids 10, 15 years ago. It's fentanyl today. We have to address that. I think I'm probably the only person in the modern history of our party that is open to a conversation about for veterans, at least let's start with PTSD where there's good evidence of psychedelics from ayahuasca to ketamine. You could actually have a, have an open discussion about rationally giving people off ramps. I personally know parents whose kids have died 
who believe in, I think on good authority, that their kids could have at least survived by having an alternative path that didn't end in the way the fentanyl path ends for 200 Americans per day across this country. So, so far, I'm with you. Here's where I, here's where I have a different perspective. It's the 85% I told you we'd agree on, here's the 15% that we may not. I think that much of the fentanyl crisis right now, so I'm not, a, I'm not an endless war on drugs person, but I'm very focused on much of what China, and I believe you just listen to what they're saying, it's true. Recently, actually, in the last, we're talking the last decade, makes cheaper synthetic raw materials for the production of fentanyl that they're shipping to Mexican drug cartels. In fact, there's actually, according to recent, according to upcoming books, supposedly coming out in January, I'm told by Peter Schweitzer, there's 800 some odd chemists and or Chinese nationals in Mexico, south of our own border, more inexpensively making fentanyl that has, this is just factually true, expanded the profit margin, because you keep the revenue the same, the costs come down, the profit margins have expanded of the Mexican drug cartels as it relates to fentanyl in particular. And I do think that there is a, notwithstanding everything I said about the demand side problem, which I stand by and want to take, have bold solutions to address, I think in this particular case, I think there is a supply side element to the problem as well that has driven a rapid spike. I mean, the number of kids who have died of fentanyl overdoses or poisoning is up tenfold in the last three years. So in that particular case, I believe that this is a solvable problem. By so long as you believe that we should have a border, I do, not everyone has to share that belief in this room, but I do. If that's our national policy, then let's at least stand by that national policy and actually say we will, if we have a border, we say we mean it. We say three branches of government, we mean it, stand by it, fine. We say we have a border, we mean it, let's stand by it. Secure that southern border using every mechanism we have available, including and up to, using the U.S. military to secure the southern border. And then I think that that's how we address the supply side of this. But I don't believe in waving a magic wand and thinking that's going to solve the problem. It's not. I'm eyes wide open and willing to be bold in crossing boundaries we haven't yet crossed to address the demand side of this as well. Okay. Um, Thank you. So I know I'm not going to convince you, but I'm going to push you a little bit harder. Fair enough. And, and perhaps it's, it's something you would uh, be willing to take a look at. Um, everything we've been talking about up until this point requires the same alphabet agencies to, to finally do something right that they've failed at doing for the last 50 years. And I, I, would, I would be skeptical that somehow this time we're going to avoid the iron law of prohibition, which always creates a more dangerous substance. And, and I would argue that this fentanyl crisis was, was explicitly created by the Trump's administration to clamp down on, on legal opioids. Many of our addicts are veterans who, who got caught in this trap. And I, I think a different way of doing this, I don't know if you've looked at, at how Portugal dealt with a very similar problem of some 20, 30 years ago, I forget exactly the time. They were the worst in Europe. The, the addiction, the death, the violence, all of the problems of, of dangerous drugs, Portugal was the poster child for that. And they decided to decriminalize everything specifically so that people like our veterans who are now stuck buying dangerous fentanyl to deal with an addiction that they developed because, because of their, their injuries, they were able to legally sort of come out of the, the shadows and say, I need help. And 
And I think a different way of doing this would be these social problems and the demand side that you're talking about. This is potentially something that we could let free people in civil societies solve better than going back to the same agencies that we've spent all this time critiquing. So I, I, I love it. I, I think that that's... So, so I'll say a few things. As I'm hearing you talk, I realize that we actually agree on a lot here. You're talking about dealing with, I'm familiar with the Portugal case that you described. Let's talk about how we got here. COX-2 inhibitors, now people know about this, Viox. Shoot that down, terrible idea, bad decision that we should optimally regret. You get the opioid epidemic. Play whack-a-mole, the new mole, the new mole mock, mock pops up in the form of fentanyl. So you're spot on in your history on this. I think in the long run, and I'm talking about over a long run period of time, decriminalization serially is an important part of the long run solution here. So we share that in common. That's gotta be part of this, that's gotta be part of the solution. So here's where I'm at. You even had a puppy on that one. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so so here's, here's the only thing I would say is, in the short run, let's just wake up to where we are. What have I said? The US president can deliver in the next four, eight years. We're working against the backdrop of not legalization, but we've already adopted one particular framework. If we're already using those administrative agencies, I'd say shut most of them down. But if the US military, I would say has one purpose, if we're gonna have the US military, it is not to secure somebody else's border somewhere else. It is to secure our own border here in the United States. And so I think that so long as we're gonna have these institutions, at least the first step is restore the purpose of those institutions. Take and tackle the demand side of this, absolutely. But I think that the last thing I'll say about the fentanyl crisis, because you don't hear me talking a lot about the other war on drugs, I'm very focused on fentanyl, is that much of the deaths, I, I know many of these families, I meet them across the country, many of these cases, especially amongst young people, are not people who even knew they were buying fentanyl. So this isn't a drug use and how do you weigh my costs and benefits of this experience. If you put fentanyl on a Big Mac, you wouldn't call it an overdose, you'd call it poisoning. If you put anthrax in a Big Mac rather than taking it through, through the way you usually get it delivered in the mail, you'd still call that poisoning. Many of the people who are dying of fentanyl usage today thought that they were smoking a different drug, smoking weed, potentially, potentially having a Percocet. That's actually a lot of kids are getting it through Snapchat via Percocet directly coming across the southern border via Mexican drug cartels. So, so I don't want to overfocus on the 10-15% where we have daylight, but just to put a fine point on it, the scope of my focus is on a short-term problem that is actively being driven intentionally by China as part of its competitiveness with the United States, expanding the profit margins of those Mexican drug cartels. And so while we deal with the demand side problem here, decriminalization is an important part of that. Addressing the mental health epidemic through a revival of purpose in this country is part of that. We also can at least seal the southern border because if we agree if we have a border, just like we agree we have three branches of government, let's actually stand by what we've already agreed to have which is a border that isn't porous, but at least has a front door that's open and a back door that's closed. That's where I land on it. Okay, we're gonna leave that there. Um, if I had three more hours, I, I'm so close to convincing you on this, but- uh, We're not that far apart, I promise you. I, I very much promise that, that you guys would get a chance to answer questions. We almost have 15 minutes left, so, so please come ask short questions and short answers. Let's try to get through as many as possible. Hello. Oh, there we go. Um, I think a lot of people here, it sounds like you're a fan of the gold standard. Ideally, we would have no Federal Reserve as part of that fourth branch of government. Amen. 
However, if for whatever reason you're unable to do some sort of mass firing of the Fed and return America to the gold standard, um, how do you see interest rate policy? Uh, personally, I think one of the only good things the Fed has done has been reversed its low interest rate policy and brought them up. I think low interest rates kind of created a whole lot of problems for the economy and uh, higher interest rates, uh, well, we shouldn't have a Fed in general, they're better than low interest rates. So what, what's your philosophy on that? So I'll, I'll stick to the answer, the mandate to keep this brief. Restore the, at least, at minimum, and I can do this, this is very reasonable and achievable. Restore a single mandate for the U.S. Federal Reserve, stabilize the U.S. dollar as a unit of measurement, period. No more playing God, balancing inflation and unemployment. No more trying to smooth out a business cycle, which actually creates financial crises in the name of preventing them. They treat wage growth as a bad thing and as a leading indicator of inflation, when in fact it's the last thing to go up in the business cycle, which means they tighten monetary policy into a downturn of the business cycle, creating booms, then busts, then bailouts. That's the cycle in 2000, in 08, and now we're seeing it in 23. We fixed that problem by firing over 90% of the headcount of the U.S. Federal Reserve, fewer than 2,000 employees from the 23,000 they have today, put them back in their place with a single mandate of stabilizing the U.S. dollar as a unit of measurement measured against gold and a basket of related commodities we can include to make this politically palatable and actually see this through. That's how we actually solve that problem. Thank you. Um, yeah, so if... Taiwan, or if China um, decides to try to prevent Taiwan from breaking away as a, an independent nation or province, should the U.S. military get involved in any way? Here's my top job as president. Make sure that we do not go to war with China over Taiwan by preventing them from doing it. And I'll tell you how I'll prevent them from doing it. Real, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in like rapid fire here. End the Ukraine war on terms that require Vladimir Putin to exit his military partnership with China. They're in a military partnership with each other. That's what gives Xi Jinping the confidence to go for Taiwan because he says the US won't want to mess with two allied nuclear superpowers at the same time. Pull Putin away from Xi Jinping, we move to a trilateral international order where none of the three major nuclear superpowers are allied instead of the bilateral one that favors Xi Jinping today. He will not go for Taiwan if Russia's not in his back. How do we get Russia out of his back and the war in Ukraine by stopping this enmity and pretending like we're defending some democracy in Ukraine when it's just two autocratic regimes fighting each other? That's the answer. As an avowed America first conservative, as president, will you pull the U.S. out of NATO or can you articulate a vision of America's national interests that would justify continued membership? So NATO, uh, as I believe, largely outlived its purpose. It was supposed to contain tensions with the USSR. You want to actually look at now, NATO has expanded more after the fall of the USSR than it ever did during it. And actually, part of its top goal was to deter war with the Soviet Union, nuclear war. NATO is actively now taking us closer to nuclear war with the Soviet Union. That's a problem. My general vision of both administrative agencies as well as these transnational institutions is that most of them at best should have been task forces instead of permanent agencies that folded up and moved on after their purpose had passed. I even view the US membership in the UN the same way. So I think that we should ask open questions about membership in both. And I think that those are on the table for us. But I will be prudent, I'll be prudent in the way we take care of this. So you would be open to waging the political battle to get the US out of NATO? I am open, and that is on the table for, so this is on the table for the levers that we use to end the Ukraine war and pull the Russia 
China alliance apart. Yes, I think that the level of U.S. commitment to NATO, if not even the long-run continued participation in NATO, is on the table. And I would say the same thing with respect to continued involvement in the U.N. as well. Thank you. Hello, thank you. Uh, from the perspective that we have a government that is a corporate entity and that it, we have it all listed on Dun & Bradstreet and its product is a compliant people. When we're looking at DC in terms of not being part of the territory of the US itself, therefore when it's, when it's creating laws that it doesn't have to obey because it is a foreign entity, it's not on, how would you, can you address that uh, situation, please. I must say, but Kyle, you've lived there. I feel like you should take this. You've, you've, li you've seen what that looks like. You want to take this one? Can you, can you put a sharp point on what that question specifically is, how to deal with D.C.? Well, well the fact that D.C. isn't part of the USA territorially, right. that means it's a foreign entity. So that is why it doesn't feel bound to the Constitution because it isn't part of the territory that the Constitution serves. Got so, okay. so I see that as one of the huge um, legal questions <clears throat> that we ought to be addressing. So, yeah, so let me, let me put a point on this. I'm, I'm going to redirect what you just said, and I think some of those points need some pushback. It is obviously part of the USA. There are U.S. citizens that live there. It's within the territorial boundaries of the United States in the same way that places like Puerto Rico are U.S. protectorates and so on, you know, the Virgin Islands. So there is a U.S. presence there, whether or not it is a U.S. state. I would agree with you. It's not a state, right? It's a territory. So D.C., I don't think our founders could have ever imagined that people would live in D.C. and that they would live there forever and that's where they would buy property and that they would make their residences there. It is an outgrowth right now of our current administrative state. The people who live in D.C., 95% of them, which are all Democrats at this point or left-leaning, they all also support the government or they are infinitely supported by the government. They cannot exist without the federal government as it currently stands. So the bloat that exists there and the sort of groupthink is all one and the same. That's why it is, they are very external to the United States with their value system. They look at the rest of the United States and think like the same way New Yorkers often do. Um, and I have in-laws who are New Yorkers. I love them dearly, but I also disagree with them bitterly. So when you have people that look like we are the only thing that matters, and D.C. exists for the sake of D.C., it's the self-licking ice cream cone is what we call it when you work for the government, right? It exists because there's ice cream. It licks itself because it has a tongue. It just keeps going around and around in a circle. So how do you make that not be a thing? And I think your, your, your policy idea, which is, I've been saying for a, a number of years now since I've been there, you have to decentralize any part of the cabinet and move it to where things are. There's a United States Department of Interior. It's headed in D.C. There is no interior in D.C., right? It's not even close to the interior of D.C. Move it to Kansas City. Move it to Omaha. Move it to Oklahoma City. Move it to America, like anywhere in America, honestly, that is not there. And so a lot of these things have the same problem. They are just in there. They are only thinking inside the beltway. It doesn't make any sense at all. And so these people need to be moved out to where the rest of the things are that they actually are dealing with. Commerce should be near commerce. There's not a lot of commerce in DC and so on. So I think that that's why they have this antithetical position to the rest of America because they just have no exposure to Americans. And if you move those agencies, people will resign. You will actually solve that problem. The FBI did this. They took part of their headquarters and put it down at Redstone in Alabama, okay, in Huntsville. When they did that, there was an absolute like mutiny of people that said, I won't live down there. How dare you? Well, that's where your job is. That's See what ya. most Americans experience. If your factory goes somewhere else, you go where the factory work is or you find a new job. If you're in D.C., you're going to have to find a new job other than government if there's less government. So you could God have... Agrees. That's what's going to happen to the D.C. employees. I'm just going to tell you. That's, that's <laughs> Make a move. Okay, ma'am. So, uh, so you could no, have a nomadic Congress. A let, nomadic Congress. 
That's just the thought. Interesting. Mark. I'll definitely forget those. I please save the severance costs that way too. Yep. Thank you so much for being here and addressing this crowd. Um, have you heard of Ross Ulbricht and would you commit to freeing Ross Ulbricht if you become president? Yes and yes is the answer to that question. Thank you. I've met his mother. I've studied his case. He has served 10 years. That was so the deal he would have done would have had him in for 10 years. I think that the entire nation can get behind him and say that he shouldn't be punished for not accepting that corrupt deal that they created a smoke screen and used the charges of murder for hire, which they didn't even end up charging in the end. Ulbricht, Assange, Snowden, we go down the list. Douglas Mackey, we have our list. Thank you we very will stand much. for the rule of law. Oh, hello. Um, so monetary policy is sort of is covered under the Constitution, but the Federal Reserve really isn't in the, and I, I also call it the administrator state, doesn't have any real controls on it under the Constitution. And so um, besides term limits for Congress and perhaps judiciary officials imposing fiscal restraints with maybe a balanced budget amendment and uh, limiting the power and jurisdiction of, federal of the federal government in their agencies, could a process like an Article Five Convention of States also address, uh, you know, uh, the administrative state with a constitutional amendment that limits uh, their power, uh, you know, if they if they do exist or are permitted to exist, and uh, you know, also, and also maybe make it so that uh, um, digital financial instruments, uh, whether it's uh, you know crypto or or some kind of a bank digital currency are only allowed to exist if they're fully fungible and exchangeable for fiat and, and or, or, uh, or uh, precious metals or, or other. Yeah. Right, right, or right, for uh, physical currency. So that you don't have a closed system that is fully owned and controlled by, you know, like the Federal Reserve, where you end up working, you know, exchanging your labor for permission to access their currency, and everything that you own is evaluated in a closed currency that they own and control. Therefore, you don't really own what you think you own. Okay, let's get an answer. So, yeah. I, so, so I just want to leave one message to you guys. Yes is the answer to both your questions. Those are possibilities. But I really want to leave you guys with this message because we don't have to make things more complicated than they need to be. Article 5 convention, absolutely. It exists for a reason in the Constitution. But most of what I'm laying out for you of shutting down that administrative state, we will get done if you elect the right president that has the spine to do it under existing statutory authority. You don't need some future dreamland, all right? I feel like we're getting like, you know, this is auspicious rain from the sky coming us, speaking truth, this is the reality here. It's coming down from on high telling us this is the answer. This is not that, I need your help to help me get there. You put me there, we don't need Article Five Convention to restore three branches of government over four, the Constitution and the law are already on our side. We just need somebody with a spine to actually see it through and get it done. That's what I leave with you. Thank you. All right, thank you. Can you explain what changed your mind on Snowden between now and when you recently went on Michael Malice's You're Welcome podcast and gave what I would consider a tap dance answer? I, not, I yeah, don't I'll, I'll tell answer. you explicitly. I love honesty. I saw Michael Malice asked me, where am I on Assange and Snowden? I said it was a hard yes on Assange that I needed to think about it much more closely on Snowden as to whether or not he's a national hero and worthy actually of a legal basis for pardon or not. 
So in the two months since then, I've dived deep into the law. I find actually strong legal authority to say that if we do set this precedent, that's something I'm absolutely comfortable with. And I'm a big believer. I think that there's two kinds of presidents you could want. Guy who's born in the, in the cradle and believes he knows everything on day one, or a guy who actually, if he's still thinking about something, is gonna tell you that he's thinking about something. I have thought about it, I've studied in depth, and you know, first time I met Ross's mom, I couldn't commit to her on the spot either. But I've learned, especially, I was moved by her story and what I've learned about it in the months since then too. And I've come down with conviction on the side of yes. And if there's one thing you'll know about me, I'll go to audiences, I'll tell you if I disagree with you. But 100% of the time, you will know that I mean what I say, even if you don't agree with me 100% of the time. And that's where I am on all three of those guys today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're, we're running out of time. But will he also commit to putting Kyle in charge of dismantling the FBI? <laughs> <laughs> Lead candidate based on our conversations. I love this man. Um, my name is Gabrielle Clark, and I... Hey, Vivek. <laughs> I'll give you a hug later. I'm going to try not to cry while I'm up here. <laughs> good to see you in person. It's good to see you, too. <laughs> Thank you for everything you did for me. I didn't intend to do this here. But I would be considered a domestic terrorist um, because of all that I've done to fight indoctrination in schools. I'm concerned though, and, and as I, I would like to see the Department of Education completely abolished because of what it's done to my family and what I have to do now to help other families. I've dedicated my life to this now. But my concern is what happens to the urban communities and what would you say to the urban communities that really do rely on a lot of the infrastructure and the money that comes from the Department of Education because geopolitics is important, it is, but America still has to deal with America. Amen. And so my, my concern is for the children that are coming up and who are, you know, we want to tr do everything we can to give them the best possible start like America promises and that begins with education. So what say you on, on the Department of Education? Well, Gabby, you don't, you don't owe me thanks for anything. We owe thanks to you for you standing up and doing what you did. So that means, that means a lot to me. You're a hero. And with the U.S. Department of Education, you're right. Shutting it down is the first step. But there is $85 billion a year spent through that agency that more than covers any underfunding gap for school choice programs across the country. I say give it back to the people. I come back from the corporate world. If the money can't be spent by the government, you distribute it as a dividend back to the people. The same thing for the taxpayer funds we've collected this way. Distribute it back as an educational dividend back to the people to actually give people, parents like you, the choice to make sure that when your son isn't trapped in a school like the one that he was trapped in, in Nevada, it's one of the saddest stories I've heard about education in this country. You have the freedom to actually get your way out. So. That's what I would do, Gabby. I appreciate it, man. Thank you, Vivek. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.